excited to get back into the series, talking about per, the pursuit of happiness as we walk into this year. And I wanted to start by just asking you a question and having you ponder this question for a moment. I want you to think about one thing that if you had it right now, you would be significantly happier. One thing that if it was different or changed or you had it right now, you would be significantly happier. I'll give you a moment to actually do it. What would it take to pursue that thing? I wonder. What would it take to pursue that thing? I wonder if the thing that came to your heart and mind first was something relational. I wonder if it was something physical, something emotional. Maybe it was something spiritual. Maybe it was practical. Maybe it was financial. And it surfaced in you first. And you thought, if I had that thing, I would be significantly happier. So here's the reality. We all pursue happiness in some level. New Year's is a time when we make resolutions and we sit down and make goals. And we don't think, my resolution is to change this, add this, do this, because then I'll be more miserable. No, we believe that those goals or those ideas or the things that we're pursuing will add some benefit to our lives to increase our happiness. If this was different, better, changed, or whatever, I'd be happier. And that's why we're opening the year with this series, these keys, these ideas to really finding happiness. And then I struggle with the idea of does the scripture, does God call us, does God desire us to even be happy? I mean, I know reggae singers want us to not worry and be happy. But does the Bible ask us to be happy? And so I went into the word of God and I was reading 1 Thessalonians. And it says something like this. It says, be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstance. And then listen to this. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We never get to the end of that little sentence. We'll talk about be joyful always. We'll talk about pray continually. We'll talk about give thanks in all circumstance. But we never really talk about, hey, this is Christ's will for you, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is Paul saying, it is literally God's will for you in Christ that you would be joyful always. Let's give me back, be joyful always. Man, how's that working out for you? You nailing this one, church? You got this on lockdown? Because if you do, you're dismissed. <laughs> be joyful always. So then I started thinking, okay, there must be a language trick here, right? It must mean something other than happy, there must be some deeper meaning to joy here. There must be some deep uh, theological principle that I'm missing that, you know, the difference between joy and happiness. Somehow there's got to be a trick here. So I looked up the word joyful, not too hard to do. And the word that the Greek uses there that Paul uses is Cairo or Kairos. And it means cheerful. Be cheerful. Be happy. It means happy. It means be well. It's like a, it, was a, it was a common salutation or a greeting. They would say, hey, Karis. Like, be happy. It's good to see you. Be happy. It literally means be happy. So then I was stuck. 
Here's the scripture telling me to do something. Telling me not only to do it, but that it's God's will for me in Christ Jesus that I do it all the time. And then I measure myself out and I go, hmm, I'm not nailing it on this. I'm not happy all the time. I'm not joyful all the time. I don't have an experience this. So maybe it would be important to dive into the scriptures a little bit and look for some keys on how do we actually do the thing that the scripture calls us and asks us and invites us to do. We all want to pursue happiness to some level, but how do we do this? It's interesting, as I began to study this, I found that the science and the scripture line up on how happiness comes into our lives. And I did some study, and I listened to some guys that did some study, and I researched some guys that did some study, and they've, they invested, investigated, and, and the answer is coffee. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> the science and the scripture both say, no, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> but they do line up, and the key is your perspective about your circumstance. Not your circumstance, because people in circumstance that you would consider horrific oftentimes are happy. And people who are in circumstances that you would consider ideal oftentimes are miserable. And both the science and the scriptures communicate that the key to happiness and how happiness comes into our lives has to do with perspective about our circumstances. And so this morning I want to talk about one of the keys to happiness. And it's this simple thing. We experience happiness on the other side of gratitude. When we are grateful for the things that we have and have experienced and the people that we know and have invested in our lives, we are genuinely able to experience happiness. The science and the scriptures both say that oftentimes this attitude of gratitude comes not from the inside, but from how we experience what happens to us externally, but how we interpret the circumstances that we go through. Ever had a coach, a teacher, a friend, a pastor, a mentor speak into your life in a way that was beneficial and helpful for you? Aren't you thankful for them? Don't you appreciate that? Oftentimes, we think about our current circumstance and miss the genuine richness of people who have invested into our hearts and lives. You know, an attitude of gratitude is contrary to culture. Culture always wants us to present like everything is Awesome. And so we don't have to be in a position of being thankful and, and, and gratitude. We just have to be awesome. If we're awesome, then we're nailing it. And I know that because in my lifetime, there's a new thing that I never had experienced before called a selfie. And I had to learn that there are certain angles that determine my level of awesomeness for the day. And where I hold my hand in position and lighting and filters and things that are like all help why so that I can just present that things are awesome. We want to do that. And then it's funny because our culture tells us we better present that things are awesome all the time. You better not have anything on your page that says that things aren't awesome. Not only because that's too real, but you never know who may be looking at your page. There might be down the road an employer looking at your at your profile at your snap tweeter whatever you're using and they're measuring and you know what they want to see they want to see that everything's awesome your future spouse might be snap stalking you right now 
So things better look amazing. Your future in-laws may be on your FaceTime page thing and checking out where your world's at. So it better be awesome. It better never look like you need help, support, coaching, friends, mentors, people to be grateful for. Better look like everything's okay all the time. So we're trained to not demonstrate gratitude or be uh, uh, presenting an attitude or a spirit of gratitude. It's interesting, even when we pray, we don't pray oftentimes in ways that are truly grateful. The science tells us there's some important things that happen when we have an attitude or a spirit of gratitude, when we're experiencing gratitude. The science says that gratitude does things like releases envy from our lives. It actually improves our memories. People who choose to be grateful and think about things they're grateful for tend to be more optimistic, less self-centered, have more self-esteem. Get this, they have better sleep. How many of you could use better sleep? Science will tell you that gratitude helps you sleep. People who are naturally thankful and experiencing gratitude are known to be more friendly and have better relationships, have an increased respect for others. You know what's never happened to me in all my years of doing ministry? I've never sat down with a couple whose intention and said, and heard them say, you know what the problem is? Kevin just appreciates me too much. He's just thankful for everything I do and it's driving me crazy. I've never had that conversation. I've had the other one. I've had the other side of that. Deeper friendships. Having a life full of gratitude, it increases your productivity. Gratitude and optimism are connected. Optimism increases our happiness. Gratefulness is known to increase our health. Overall, just improving your life. It's just true. It's hard to be mad at someone who's very grateful, who's constantly taking a position of thankfulness. It's hard to hold frustration towards them. And so I got to thinking about how difficult it is when our outside circumstances are tough to maintain this attitude and this heart that's thankful. I like being around people who are thankful, but I don't know if I always am one of those people. Oftentimes our circumstances cause us to not live in a place of gratitude. So I started looking in the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 5, then I'm going to jump over to Acts chapter 9, and then I'm going to jump back to Luke 15. I'm in Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, there's an amazing thing that's happening here. The church is just exploding. The Holy Spirit's shown up. Everything's going pretty awesome. And the Sanhedrin or the religious authorities at that time, they don't know what to do about it. They're like, wow, all these people are becoming followers of Jesus. We don't really like it, so we have to kibosh this thing. So in Acts chapter 5, the apostles begin to become persecuted by the Jewish authority, the Sanhedrin, the court, and they get arrested. Paraphrase what's happened up until this point. They get arrested, and they're in jail, and they're facing potentially death, scourging. They don't know what's going to happen to them. 
And in the middle of the night, an angel shows up and releases them from jail. This is incredible. They get out of jail and the angel says, just keep doing what you're doing though. So they don't leave. They go out to the outer wall and they start preaching again. So the religious court wakes up the next morning and they go to the jail to pull these guys out to punish them, but they're not there. And they're like, uh-oh, jailbreak, what happened? These guys got away from us. They turn around and the guys are just on the wall still preaching. Can you imagine you broke out of jail, but you didn't leave the jail? You're still just there talking about Jesus? And they, the religious uh, uh, police have said, listen, what we need you to do, guys, is just stop talking about Jesus. If you stop talking about Jesus, everything will be cool. And the disciples and the apostles, they're like, we can't do that. You can ask us to do anything else, but this is the story. This is who Jesus is. We can't stop telling the story. That's how they ended up in jail. So now these guys are out on the wall and they're just still talking about Jesus. And these crowds are starting to gather. They're like, weren't you guys just in the jail? They're like, yeah, an angel let us out. They're like, wait, what? How come you're not running away? Oh, because we got to tell you about Jesus. Wait. So this story's happening. They're talking about Jesus. The religious police show up. They're not in jail. They're out there talking. They said, gather these guys again. This time, go easy on them because we've got a crowd out there. We don't want a riot to start. They bring them back in, and they're like, what are we going to do? We might just have to kill these guys. And one of them speaks up, Acts chapter 5, verse 38. It says, well, therefore, in this present case, here's my advice to you. Leave these men alone. I love that. Let them go. And listen to this. This is cool. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. They say, you know what? If the thing these guys are doing, if it's just about them, if they're just trying to gather attention to themselves, if they're just trying to impress and be impressive, it's not gonna work out. We don't have to make it a bigger deal than it appears to be right now. If it's from human origin, it's just gonna fail. Verse 39, but if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You're only gonna find yourself fighting against God. How powerful is that picture? They're like, hey, if these guys are from God, you're not going to be able to stop them. Look at verse 40. His speech persuaded them. So I love this picture up until this point. The disciples are in prison. They're out of prison. They're going to get killed. They're not going to get killed. Now they're going to be free to go. Let them go. It says, so, so they speech persuaded them. And then look at verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Now it's easy to just blow through this because in our culture, we don't flog people anymore. We don't understand what actually happened when somebody was flogged. But you got to get a picture of what happened to these guys. They were in jail. They thought they were going to die. They were out of jail. They got to talk about Jesus. This guy comes in and makes an argument on their behalf and says, let's just let him go. It's like, yes. It's like, first, flogged. Now, if you don't know what flogging is, the picture of flogging from the biblical narrative from the Romans time is pretty horrific. Here's what I want you to imagine. There's a, a, a stone or a stump of wood and they chain you to it around it like this so your back is exposed. And they take a whip, and it's a whip with multiple, uh, like a, a stick handle and maybe like four or nine uh, ropes coming off of it, and they have like barbs on them. And they take this weapon, this tool, this whip, and they whip you across the back. And when they pull back, it rips the flesh from your back. As a matter of fact, it's one of the things that happened to Jesus on his way to the cross. Now, it's very easy for us to just read over this because flog doesn't mean anything to us. It could say frogged, and we'd be like, whatever, they got frogged, right? 
We, wouldn't, we have no context. But when you have the context of what this means, this means that they were individually bound. Their backs were exposed. And a whip with barbs on it was whipped across their back and flesh was ripped away from their back. Verse 40, had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. They're like, hey, one more time. Stop talking about Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound like a great day. If I had this kind of day, I'm out. Like, that's a wrap for me for right now, right? Send me to the ER, give me some stitches. Like, I know chicks dig scars, but they're not scars right now. I need some painkiller, and like, that's the end. Look at their reaction. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What name? The name of Jesus. They took a beating. They were literally whipped and had the skin ripped off their flesh. And their response was, awesome. I'm on the same team as Jesus. I'm experiencing, I've been considered worthy of experiencing difficulties like Jesus did. Look at what has happened as we're following Jesus. We're getting to experience what he experienced. I don't know about you, but when things aren't going well, I don't go, well, this is awesome because they also were mean to Jesus, right? When someone's mean to me, my, my, my immediate response, I don't like if I make a comment and it has some kind of thing about my values and it's like, well, you shouldn't talk about Jesus. I'm like, this is America. I'm defensive. I go on the attack. It pulls out of me my fight response. When you tell me I can't talk about Jesus, I want to buck up. I don't want to be whipped for it. I don't want to be threatened and have my life threatened for it. Yet here's this immense, deep gratitude. Oh, you're giving them a hard time. That's the same thing that happened to Jesus. Now listen to what happens then. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I don't know if you have a picture of this. Let me give you a picture of this. These guys have just been whipped. They don't got a lot of clothes, a lot of wealth. They didn't build any of that up on their journey with Jesus. But they're going door to door. Let me tell you about Jesus. What's wrong with you? Oh, don't worry about it. Let me tell you about Jesus. No, no, no. What's going on with your back? Well, here's the thing. When you follow Jesus, you get to rejoice when they whip you and beat you the way they did that to Jesus. But let me tell you about Jesus. I don't know what kind of story, how that would work. If someone showed up at my door, bloody and scarred with ripped clothing, saying, isn't it awesome that following Jesus has brought me down the path? I'm not sure that's the reaction I would have. But here's the thing. Imagine being so grateful that you get to partner with God that you consider it an honor when you go through tough times, when circumstances don't line up the way you wish they would line up, when the world takes a swing at you because you go, oh, yeah, Jesus had that same experience. Imagine taking that posture. True gratitude comes from realizing how amazing it is what Jesus did for us, no matter what our circumstance is. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2. He says, so then just as you receive Jesus as Lord, just keep living in him. 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. You know, I find that the further I get away from remembering what Jesus did for me, the less thankful I am for my circumstance. I do it from time to time. We just drift, right? We just drift. We start thinking about our situation, our bank account, that relationship, the issue that we're fighting, the health thing, and we just get further and further away. And sometimes if I would stop for just a moment and go, man, think about what God's done for me already. Think about that no matter what happens at the end of this circumstance. He's already guaranteed my salvation forever. Wouldn't it change my perspective on that circumstance? But I get so far, I drift further and further away. True gratitude comes from realizing how amazing it is that Jesus did what he did for us. So these disciples keep on ministering. They keep on knocking on doors. They keep on talking to people. And we get to meet someone in Acts chapter 9 who has, because of this ministry, come to know Jesus. And they, this person doesn't have the kind of awesome ministry that the disciples have. They're not teaching. They're not leading. In fact, it's one of my favorite people in all of scripture. And it's a woman named Tabitha. You might know her by her awesome name, Dorcas. <laughs> Let's get the giggles out because that's funny. Dorcas. We meet a woman named Dorcas, named Tabitha. And it, we see her in Acts uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 36. We're going to meet her in just a moment here. And she's awesome. <clears throat> now, I love the name Tabitha and, and Dorcas. It, it throws me off, uh, but I'll, I'll explain it in just a moment. But what happens in Acts chapter 9, we've, we've in this interim, uh, Saul of Tarsus has got knocked off his donkey. He's become a, a believer. The church doesn't know what to do with him yet. They don't really trust him. And so there, there uh, is this whole interaction with him. And Peter has begun kind of becoming a, the first real missionary, but just to the Jews. He's going from town to town to his people, and he's telling the story of Jesus. He's pastoring this church that's exploded from Pentecost and he's on the road and he's in a place called Lydda and uh, it's a it's a city it's a little bit north of the place that we're going to uh, meet uh, in Joppa and he's in a place called Lydda and he's just ministering and talking and then Acts chapter 9 Luke the doctor the professor uh, the historian who's writing the book of Acts tells us that Peter uh, the church is going through a time of peace in this moment and at this time Peter's going from town to town and he's connecting with people and there's a story of him and he's in Lydda and he meets a, a person who's been sick and he heals them and this is a cool thing and, and and Peter uh, is experiencing this ministry. And then suddenly, Luke, the historian, says, let me tell you, though, about this really amazing person. And she's in Joppa. Now, Joppa is an interesting place in Scripture. It's a significant place in Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you've heard of Joppa, you've heard of Joppa because you're familiar with the story of Jonah. Joppa is the port city that Jonah flees to when he's trying to get on the boat. Come on now, because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He's running the other direction. So the story of Jonah, God has a, a message that he wants to deliver to this heathen people, the Ninevites. He tells Jonah, you're going to be my prophet. You're going to go over there. You're going to deliver the message. And Jonah goes, I ain't doing it. I don't like those people. They ain't nice. They're mean to us. They're mean to me. They smell. I don't want to go talk to them. I'm going the other way. And he goes to Joppa. Now, why is Joppa significant? Um, this is just free extra stuff. I like this, this history because it just connects the scripture. Joppa is this place that from there, Jonah launched out. He ends up on a boat. He ends up overboard. He ends up in a fish. He ends up regurgitating. It's like a gross, awesome, amazing story. You should read it in Jonah. And, uh, and from there, he finally goes to Nineveh and this entire group of people who aren't Jews come to know the Lord. So in Acts chapter nine, 
Peter's going to find himself in Joppa, this port city, this transitional city between cultures. And he's going to get a message while he's at Simon the Tanner's house that he needs to go visit a guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is where he's going to have a vision that's going to break open the fact that the Holy Spirit and God's mercy and grace is for everyone, not just the Jews. It's for every culture. It, it transcends all. So Joppa's this launching place of God's word. So this is cool stuff. God's word being sent out from one people to all people. Joppa shows up again. And so Luke, the historian, wants us to know and connect in history that there is a significant place here that God's about to launch his word out for all people. And it's in Joppa. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated as Dorcas. Now, why does the scripture give her that name? That's just mean. First of all, it wasn't mean back then. It's just mean now because language has changed. Why does it give her two names? Well, it gives her two names because Tabitha is her Hebrew name and Dorcas is her Greek name. Both words mean the same thing. They're both just her name. But she's in Joppa, which is this hub, this intersection of cultures. And so identifying her to these people from one culture and from her Hebrew culture, it's significant to say you've met or heard of this woman. Maybe you heard of her called Tabitha. That's her Hebrew name. Maybe you knew her as Dorcas. It's Peter. I mean, it's Luke just giving us context. Now, what's cool is if you look up the name Tabitha or look up the name Dorcas, it's not a, it's not a silly name. It's actually a beautiful name. It means gazelle. It's the kind of name that a Hebrew, uh, who, which she was, uh, would give to a daughter uh, to instill these values of beauty and freedom. And <laughs> all right, let's just be, can, can we have church for just a second? I started looking up. I'm like, where does the gazelle show up in scripture? You know where the gazelle shows up the most in scripture? Song of Solomon. Inappropriate. <laughs> I'm just saying inappropriate. Don't Google gazelle in scripture unless you want to read some stuff. What am I saying that for? Because the reality is she had a word spoken over her life, an identity, a name that was just about beauty and kindness and freedom. And, and, and uh, it was, it's just, it's a beautiful name. So next time you see Dorcas and you're like, ha ha ha, it's awesome. Loving, caring, and beautiful. What was she known for? This is powerful. Who was always doing good and helping the poor. I don't know about you. That is one of the coolest just epitaphs that you could get in scripture. That you can get in history. That the people who knew you, that Luke is so concerned as a historian. Hey, I want to make sure you know who this is. This is Tabitha. Maybe you knew her as Dorcas. And she's the one. And everyone would go, oh, okay, yeah, we know her reputation. She was always doing good and helping the poor. She was always doing good for people and helping people who had less Come on now, than what she had. That's what she was known for. Why is she famous? She was compassionate. She cared. She was known in her community. She was known beyond the scope of her immediate community as someone who was helpful. Paul in, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about different gifts of the Spirit. And he says, one of the gifts is the gifts of helps. It's just the gift of being helpful and supportive and helping other people. And she had this gift. She was known for that. And I love this picture of her because it doesn't say she had a thriving church coming out of her home. It doesn't say she led an amazing Bible study. It doesn't say she was a great evangelist. It doesn't say she had a healing ministry. It just says she was known because she what? Was always doing good and helping people who had less than her. Verse 37, 
About that time, she became sick and she died. Her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda, that's the city where Peter's in, was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. I love this picture. Here's this woman who's just known for being helpful and caring and compassionate and serving those that are less fortunate. And she passes away unexpectedly. Doesn't seem like natural causes. She got sick and she died and it's unexpected. And there's a shock to the community because she's helpful. She's a servant. And you know what they want? They want their pastor. Hey, Peter's just one town over. Send some guys up there to grab him and let him know that this amazing saint has passed away. And we just need our pastor. We need the body to come together. We need our, our, our someone to come around and be close to us in this time of need. Now, one of the hardest and most beautiful things I get to do in this role that God's assigned me in is just be with people sometimes going through really tough things. A couple years ago, I was in Oregon, <clears throat> and uh, we were in a church that was meeting in an elementary school, and the custodian of that elementary school, we would pay him to come after church and do a cleanup, and that was part of the contract in order to uh, use the elementary school. You had to do that, and he would come and clean up, and we'd talk with him afterwards because we're loading up trucks and, and putting chairs away, and he's mopping and doing stuff, and he says, hey, one of these days, he says, hey, my wife, <clears throat> she's the head of the PTA at this school, and we do a, a carnival to raise funds for whatever PTA things that were going on, and we're just wondering if maybe your church would want to come and volunteer and help at this. And we say, yeah, how many volunteers do you need? And he says, oh, we, need like, we need like 20 or 30, but we, you know, just however many you guys can send. So we'll send 30. A little step of faith, right? <laughs> so we pull together 30 people and we go and we serve at this carnival and it goes well. And they're so, their socks are blown off because a lot of those people don't go to that school, but they still showed up and served. And, and uh, uh, George is the custodian's name and his wife, Julie, were so impressed. They weren't believers, but they were so impressed that the church had shown up and just done a gift of serving that they said, can we come on Sunday and just say thank you? We said, yeah, we'd love to have you come on a Sunday and say, and say thank you. So, so Sunday morning rolls around and they show up, um, you know, after worship, we announcement kind of time, you know, normal stuff. And they come up and they say, hey, we just want to say thanks. And we're like, oh, that's great. <clears throat> they sit in the back through service and at the end of service, they receive Jesus, get saved. It's amazing. I said, man, we don't know what's going on here, but we want to know. So they start asking questions, and we go on this journey, and we're walking through stuff. They have wild background, but great people. And, and here's Julie, who's just a gem in the community. She's just a server. She, you know, is a stay-at-home mom, but just volunteers at everything at the school, and everyone knows her. She's in the library. She's in the office. She's everywhere you go. About a year of walking through this with, with them, and they've come to know the Lord as their kids get saved. It's just this cool picture, this whole family coming to know Jesus because we volunteered at some school thing. Judy gets home one day. She's like, I kind of got a headache, and she falls over and dies. Brain aneurysm, just like that, gone, 32 years old. And I remember getting the call. Judy's in the hospital. She's passed away. I'm like, wait, Julie can't be in the hospital Julie's like 32 years old. That's like, that's not a call you get for like, what happened? Was there an accident at the house? What happened? No, she just fell over, just passed away. And I remember walking into this environment. You got words. Like there's not words and there's not a thing that like a recipe for success. You just come in and you cry. You throw your arms around people and you love them. And you think about this incredible testimony of 
a group of followers of Jesus who just were helpful, who reached a woman who the clock was ticking for when she was going to be face-to-face with Jesus. But she got to be face-to-face with Jesus a year quicker than that. And she got to meet him as her personal Lord and Savior. And I remember that after this emotional swell, the testimonies at her funeral. Anyway, I'm going to... I'm not going to get back to Tabitha if I don't stop talking about Julie for a second, but I just want you to understand this is what's happening here. They're emotional and they're sad. The, the church is this new thing, and suddenly here's Tabitha, and she's just serving and loving people and being kind, and it has this incredible impact, and she passes away suddenly, and everyone is shook to the core by this. And they send for Peter. And they say, please come at once. Verse 39, Peter went with them. And when he was arrived, he was, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs into the room. Look at this. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. Now, this is pretty cool. We get the picture of what her serving actually was. She could sew, the long lost art of sewing. She had a gift. She could sew, and she would sew for these widows. Now, I got to give you some context here because I know we kind of know this, but you have to understand one of the most precarious places you could be was to be a widow in this culture. As a matter of fact, widows were treated the same ways as aliens or outsiders were treated. They had no civil rights in this situation. It was one of the most dangerous places you could be both relationally and socioeconomically. It was very dangerous to be a widow. If your husband passed away and you did not have a male heir, you lost your entire estate, all of your resources, everything was gone. You had no claim and no rights to those things. You were left as a beggar essentially. And here's Tabitha. She doesn't have a preaching ministry. She doesn't have a teaching ministry. She doesn't have a healing ministry. She doesn't have an evangelism ministry. She doesn't have a worship ministry. We don't know if she plays tambourine. Like, we don't know any of those things. But she has a gift. She can sew. And she is kind and serves the poor, and she takes that gift and she sews. Now, here's what we have to know about clothing in this culture. Clothing was the difference between life and death. Clothing was an asset. It was a resource. There's a reason why they cost, cast lots and, and, and tried to get a hold of Jesus' clothing when it was stripped from him because clothing had genuine value. You could trade it as a commodity. There's a reason why when Jesus tells the expression about you know, uh, giving the cloak off your back and those things, there's, a, there's an authority and a power that's there with your clothing because if you don't have anything else but you have the right clothing, that's your sleeping bag. That's how you stayed alive. And Tabitha's entire ministry was that she went to the least of these and made sure they had the basic things that they needed. And there's a group of people. I was thinking about in in terms of gratefulness. Imagine just how grateful this group of people is. And sometimes we think that the ministry and the things that we're doing are mundane or small. They're not significant. They don't have that much impact. And I wonder, it was a bad illustration, but stay with me. Would there be widows grieving? When you pass away and when I pass away, people who look around and say, that person's heart and their service and the way they follow Jesus and listen. Because you remember Matthew 25, Jesus was clear. He goes, I'm separating sheep and goats in that day and I'm gonna have some distinctive features about the people who are authentically following me and the people who just look like they're following me but they really aren't. There's gonna be some distinctive features about those people and it's gonna be some features that might not be the thing that you're thinking 
It's going to be the people who, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. Listen to this, verse 36, Matthew 25. I needed some clothes, and you clothed me. wonder if Tabitha heard those words. Somebody repeated, hey, this is what Jesus said it was like. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Peter shows up, and there's this group of women, women of no standing socially anymore. And they're surrounding this body and they're weeping and they're saying, Pastor Peter, you got to know what kind of person we lost here. You got to know what happened and why we're so sad. She made these for us. She valued us. She cared for us. She protected us with her gift. Verse 40 says, Peter sent them out of the room. He got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he says, hey, Tabitha, Peter's here. Get up. No, I added that. <laughs> he just says, hey, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. How cool is that? He took her by the hand. He helped her to her feet. Then he called all the believers and the widows and presented to her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, this city that people launched into multiple communities from and many people believed in the lord and peter stayed at joppa for some time with tanner named with a tanner named simon until cornelius man comes knocking for him i read this story a bunch of times the last couple weeks and i gotta tell you i don't know why tabitha got raised from the dead she certainly isn't the most significant uh voice that that we have in the book of acts that passes away I mean, just a couple chapters before, it would have been really cool to raise Stephen from the dead. Stephen, who becomes an a, a avid follower of, of Jesus, and remember, they threw rocks at him because he was like, listen, I, I, I figure this out, and you need to figure this out. Our ancestors have always killed the prophets, the people that God spoke through. We always get it after the fact. We always miss it when we're in it because we don't want to hear what God's saying, but then after the fact, we go, oh, wow, that was really important. We should probably go back and listen to that. We did it again with Jesus, and so you guys need to repent and say you're sorry for what you did because Jesus is as important He's more important than all that. And they went, no, 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 we're not trying to hear this. And they threw rocks at him and he died. Raising P, uh, Stephen from the dead would have been amazing in that moment. I don't know why God didn't choose to do that. He chose Tabitha. This woman in this town, this hub of cultures and launching point of stories and influence, this woman who had somehow swelled to such influence by doing the smallest thing you could think of, just using her simple gift to serve the least of these. I don't know if Tabitha was grateful for being raised. I don't know if she was like, ah, resting at last. And then suddenly Peter's like, hey, get back to work. And she's like, oh, no, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying, how cool is it that God chose to bring her back. And then we don't have a picture. We don't know what life for Tabitha was like after that, but we know what life was like before that. So I think it's safe to assume that this was the kind of person who spent all her time helping others and serving the poor. I wonder how long it was before she started sewing again. Just loving on someone else who was in need. Sometimes I think it's hard to be grateful because we don't see the impact of the simple things that we're doing. We try to follow God and we're like, I don't really see the impact. And we don't realize that there is a surrounding 
influence circle that someday <laughs> we'll be telling stories about that time that you brought a can of or a package of whatever potato, dried potato, somethings. Listen, man, we ate and we didn't know we were going to eat, but you gave some potatoes. We think, oh, that's not that big a deal. You don't understand how tough my life is and the things I got going on. Yeah, it's that big of a deal. I think of Tabitha's story reminding us sometimes we get exhausted. Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says, hey, don't become weary. Let's not become weary in doing, the good, doing good. For at the proper time, we'll reap a harvest if we just don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people. And then I love this, especially those that are in the family of believers. He says, as we have opportunity, let's be intentional and just do good to all people. And hey, you know who's in all people that we should really pay attention to? The family members that are inside the body. Let's be good to one another. Let's do good to one another. So don't give up. Don't give up. As you're pursuing happiness, keep serving. Keep being who God designed you to be. Keep doing and using your gifts, especially within the family. You know, as we walked through this tension of gratitude a few months ago, <clears throat> one of the big takeaways was this, and I wanted to remind us of this, that the more you think you're entitled to, the less you'll be grateful for. The more you think you're entitled to, the less you'll be grateful for. The more you think, if I deserve this, and I put the work in, and I should get this, and I've been doing this forever, and I haven't seen any reward, and this person's not doing all the things that I'm doing, and why are they getting the reward? The more you think you're entitled to, the less you'll be grateful for. You want to break that spirit of entitlement? Take some time and be grateful for the things that you do have. Realize that the, the little things that you're doing, the faithfulness that you're uh, experiencing and, and walking in is actually reaping an incredible reward. The more you think you're entitled to, the less you'll be grateful for. You know, Jesus tells a story about entitlement that's pretty powerful in Luke chapter 15. He tells a bunch of stories about lost things, coins and sheep, and eventually... There's a story of two brothers, and <clears throat> not Jesus, but later on, historians and Bible scholars dubbed this the story of the prodigal son, but it's really not about a son. It's about two brothers. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus, to this audience of church people, Pharisees and gathered people, starts talking about the heart of his father and the nature of these two brothers. And he says, hey, there's these two brothers. I'm going to paraphrase for you because of time. He says, there's two brothers. And they got a father and they have some wealth. And one brother goes to his father and essentially says, hey, you're living so long that I don't get my turn to be at the head and to get all the things I'm entitled to. I wish you would just hurry up and die. But since you won't hurry up and die, can I just have my inheritance right now? That's the text, the subtext of this story. The father unfathomably says, okay. And he divides his property and inheritance and gives that son his half. The other son remains with the father. And we know the story. The son who received that half, he went off and he squandered it. He went into the city and fast living and, and, and all of the things that you would do if you were young and adolescent and irresponsible and immature and suddenly had wealth. He went out and he did it all. Well, culture and time and things shifted and suddenly he found himself no longer living high off the hog, but living under the hogs, literally in the pig pen. Now, this would have been an incredibly, incredibly offensive place for a Jewish person to find themselves living in pig slop, trying to eat it to survive. 
And the scripture says a powerful thing. It says he came to his senses. It's like he came online. He was like, this is, this is not an acceptable place for my life to end up. He says, even in my father's house, the lowest of the low don't live with the pigs. So I'll go back and kind of throw myself at the mercy of the court and see if my father will just accept me as one of his servants or his slaves, basically. And you know the scripture, when he's a long way off, his father sees him. And Jesus telling the story says the father sees him and he runs to his son and he throws his robe over him and he takes off his ring and he puts his ring on him, restoring him in a very physical and tangible way to a place of authority in his house. And he brings him in and he calls the servants and he says, slaughter the fattened calf. We have to throw a party. I thought my son was lost. I thought he was dead and he's here. We have to celebrate. Well, that's not the end of the story because there's another brother. And this other brother hears the commotion. The calf's getting slaughtered. It starts smelling like steak. Music's playing and he comes in from the field. And he's like, what's all this about? And the servants explain to him, your brother has come home and your father's ordered that we have a party and that we celebrate. Luke 15, verse 28, it says, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. The more you feel you're entitled to, the less you'll ever feel grateful. He became, so here's what he does. He goes, there's a party going on for my brother. I ain't going in there. I ain't celebrating with them. That knucklehead. And I love this. So his father went out. What did his father do with the last son? He went out to him. The father came out to him too, to this other son. And it says his father went out and pleaded with him. Goes to his son and says, Come inside, celebrate with us. Your brother's restored, he's home. But the son answered the father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Wait, I gotta read it in my teenager voice. I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Come on now, I did a lot of youth ministry. I know how that tone is. I know where that tone is right? I never get to go. I never get it. He's outside and he's throwing a fit. Verse 30. But when this son of yours, right? That's how he refers to him. Not my brother. This son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, he comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. He says, you're missing the picture here. You've never not had access to all the things that I have for you. You've been so busy working for me. You haven't appreciated everything. You've lost all sense of gratitude. Do you see how warm it is in our house? Do you see how there's food every day? Do you see the care and, the, and, and all of the things? You're an heir. You're entitled to everything I have. That's who you really are. You've missed it. You thought you were gonna get some party? Who needs to party? The whole party is always yours. Everything belongs to you. You're an heir. All I have is yours. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, not just this son of mine, this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. 
It's really hard sometimes to have a spirit of gratitude when it feels like someone else is getting the things that they don't deserve. Come on now, you know. I've been serving God longer than them. Why'd they get the promotion? Why'd they get the new car? Why'd they get the new house? Why, why, oh, Father in heaven, did you bless them? Why did you take care of them? I've been slaving away for you. And God would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop standing like you're outside of the party. That's your brother. When he's blessed, you're blessed. The kingdom is blessed. When he comes home, we all celebrate. Yeah, he ran wild. Yeah, he has the scars and the damage and the baggage from that. But he's home now and he's healed and we can restore him. And that's something we should celebrate. That's your brother. Be careful, guys. When we're not feeling gratitude, the first thing you do is stop giving. You stop caring. You stop sharing, you stop serving, you unplug. When you don't feel gratitude, you get outside the party and you do this. Oh, this ain't fair. I'm not getting what I'm entitled to. I'm not gonna serve. I'm not gonna give. I'm not gonna keep on partnering with you. And we miss the fact that the reason we did all those things wasn't to get something. It's because it's already all been given to us. We're already entitled to it. And it makes me wonder and makes me ask, what am I missing because I'm not grateful? What blessing, what provision, what party, what celebrating? What am I missing because I'm not grateful? How many times am I standing outside the party looking at a distance going, yeah, that's good enough. No, I'm not going in there. Not till I get my party. Not till I get my blessing. Not till I get my provision. Not till all the effort of my work. Not till all the, come on, the garments I sewed. I want credit for the ones that I sewed. No one's weeping for me right now. And we get this pity party mentality. And God's like, wait. I'm pleading with you. Come in and celebrate. Recognize that their blessing is your blessing. That we're connected, that we're in the family, and that it's incredible that I've blessed them and everything I have is available to you too. Would you stand with me? I was trying to just think of some very practical tools to give you, and the basic one that I had, I kind of walked out is, can you imagine... If the next time that that critical moment, critical spirit starting to come up, the next time you're having a hard time feeling like, you know, joy for someone else's success or feeling like you haven't got the thing that didn't work out the way you wanted it to, what if you paused and you took a moment and just said, you know what, I'm going to think of a few things, maybe three things, maybe five things that I'm really, truly grateful for. Before I go into this environment where I got to deal with someone else's success or the thing I didn't want, whatever it is, and I'm just going to take a moment and recognize. Maybe like the disciples early on, I'm carrying some scars. Okay, let me just be uncomfortable for a moment. Some of us, your past has left some brutal scars and it is unfathomable for you to hear someone say you can have gratitude for what you've been through it's unfathomable for you to hear that but you need to hear that because it didn't kill you it's now part of your story and your story has power 
And there is power available in you and through your story because of what you've been through. And you can be grateful for that. There's power when those disciples said, we're carrying on our backs the same kind of scars and pain that Jesus experienced. And we're still moving forward. And it hasn't stopped us. And they ordered us to shut our mouths. And we told them we'll never shut our mouths. We'll never comply with that order. We'll never stop declaring how good and how faithful God is no matter what we've been through. There is power in your story story because of your scars and you can find places of gratefulness on the other side of that because God's been with you and continues he heals and is healing you for some of you you've been serving in ways that have felt left you feeling unappreciated you're like you don't understand all I do is I do this and I serve and I gotta tell you there's some people who have big gifts and can do flashy things and have, but you know what? There's a lot of people who have simple abilities and gifts of helps to serve people and the impact in the kingdom of God is so huge because you're faithful to use your gift and you may never see it. It may be on the other side. I don't know if Tabitha ever saw it till she woke up and went, what is all this fuss about? I don't know. You may never see it, but your willingness to stay faithful and to serve even in ways that makes you feel un, like you feel like no one even notices it, it may be all the difference in eternity. And for some of us, come on now, just taking a moment to realize everything the Father has has been given to us already. And it may look, look like the same material things that someone else has, but, but everything has been made available because you're an heir. How cool is that? How cool is that? How could we not take a moment and have some genuine gratitude? You want to break the hold of entitlement? Take a moment and just realize everything God's promised us. That's stinking awesome. If we can get a hold of that, the difference it would make in our own hearts and lives and how we interact with people, in our relationships, in our families, in our neighborhood, and dare I say, in our community and in our places where we go and and connect with people, if we could get a hold of that, the impact, the change, the lives that could be changed, I don't know what the end of that could look like. So that's my prayer. As we pursue happiness, in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna unbreak it. My prayer for you is that it would all start right here, of you recognizing just how incredible what God has done already is. So Jesus, in this moment, I just wanna have a transparent, honest moment and be real and say, it's been hard sometimes to appreciate. It's been hard to appreciate some of the pain of my past. But when I look at what you can do with that, I go, wow, thank you. Thanks for not leaving me there. Thanks, if nothing else, that my story is I'm not who I used to be. God, for those that feel like, man, I've been serving and serving and no one's noticing and no one cares and it's making no impact and I don't see the difference and, and woe is me. God, would you give us divine perspective? <laughs> I was hungry and you fed me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. <laughs> the simple steps of obedience of a life following Jesus making all the difference in the world. God, for those of us carrying around some bitterness, hey, we've been faithful and someone else's blessing doesn't look like our blessing and, and somehow it's got us some experiencing a, a, a sense of entitlement instead of gratitude. I pray you'd break that spirit in us. 
We want to come into the party. We want to celebrate. We want to enjoy someone else's success and be thrilled and excited for them, understanding in the kingdom of heaven, we're all heirs. Give us that perspective, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Help us to pursue the things that will truly, truly bring happiness. We know that's your desire for us in Christ Jesus, that we do that always. So recalibrate us, recalibrate our goals, recalibrate us towards true gratitude. We thank you for it, and we love you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. And amen. Hey, thank you. Appreciate you. God bless you. Go have an awesome week in the Lord. Have a good